Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Friday, October 7th, 2022 is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all the things there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and every now and again, what kind of cannabis you can find at the local dispensaries, and so much more, including columns from your very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com, and if you want to help out this program, you can. You can listen, but you can also go to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A, B is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Hot Mike Biden Friday, and here's why. Well, President Joe Biden got himself in trouble the other day. Uh, he's down in Florida, bringing, taking a look at the damage caused by the hurricane, holding hands with Ron DeSantis, the uh, very MAGA man governor of the state of Florida. Get into that a little bit. Uh, and uh, as he was making conversation with the mayor of, uh, what well, I think it was uh, Fort Myers Beach, uh, he said, and I quote, and we're allowed to swear on a podcast, okay? We're allowed to swear. He dropped the F-bomb. No one fucks with a Biden. <laughs> and everybody's, there. well, I, I got to amend that. Not everybody's nuts. Fox, I love, you know, it's just like, if it wasn't so devastating, uh, if it wasn't so potentially destructive to democracy as we know it and the world as we know it, I would just be really enjoying everything that Fox does, their coverage. of It's like a performance piece. And and they just change uh, their attitude and tone just on a dime, uh, depending on what they need at that moment. So in this case, they must express outrage that people in America were exposed to such a nasty word. The president should have more discipline, even though their boy, Donnie T, is dropping F-bombs left and right. So there are, suddenly we have to worry about the children who are hearing this, even though there are signs in Illinois, we've had guests come on to talk about this, in uh, red counties in Illinois that say, fuck Joe Biden. And they put the signs out in their lawn. Like in some cases are like near schools. So little kids walking to school go, Danny, what does that word mean? But suddenly they're outraged. That's number one, what they have to do. The second thing they have to do uh, is present it as an example uh, that uh, Joe Biden has uh, is heading into senility here. And so this is the what they do. There he goes again, ladies and gentlemen. He's clearly incompetent. He clearly doesn't have his faculties. He clearly has lost his mind. This is our leader. This is the man who controls the bomb. Unbelievable. What do you think about this? And then they turn to their gas to go, I'm outraged too. Even though when it comes to Her- Herschel Walker, their guy down in Georgia, half the stuff he says is like, huh? What? And then they say, well, we support him no matter what, because he could be the decisive vote in the Senate. And so it's just so funny to watch the performance pieces played by 
just MAGA, MAGA people in the media, MAGA people in politics, MAGA people in general. I'm going to tell you something about Joe Biden dropping that F-bomb. My distinguished guest is sitting by, Miles Kanflassen, put this notion in my head today, right before we went on the air. I hadn't thought about this. This just shows you how much more jaded and cynical Miles is than I am. And he's younger than I am. Uh, he said he doesn't, not sure if Biden just said that on purpose just to make himself look all tough and viral. Oh, yeah, what a weird time, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody I know in the city of Chicago is dropping the F-bomb all the time. I've had like five conversations this morning with various people for various things. F-bomb flying left and right. And I wouldn't say any of them are particularly tough or viral. They're just people. That's just how people talk these days. It's considered a shock when a president chooses such a word. Unless, of course, the president is President Trump. Then he's tough and viral. You're weird, MAGA. Admit it. Just admit you're weird. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to bring on Miles Kanflassen, the editor, writer for In These Times, dear friend of the show, regular uh, guest of the show. Uh, Miles, you want to go in and take a little deeper dive on your theory that maybe Joe uh, Biden uh, just uh, did that on purpose? Do you really believe that? Or were you just sort of, you know, trying an idea out on me? <laughs> well, I always like to, you know, flow through uh, any possibilities when it comes to things that seem a little fishy, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, because you're right, it was a viral moment for uh, the president and compared to some of the other gaffes uh, or, you know, stumbles that Biden has had in, you know, recent weeks and months, this one certainly uh, is not so bad in comparison, uh, you know, he's kind of projecting himself as a tough guy. And, you know, I'm not not to say it was inauthentic because, you know, this is the same person, you know, who said called Obamacare a big fucking deal, you know, famously in a hot mic to, to Obama. So clearly Biden does have a penchant for, um, you know, dropping that particular uh, term. Also, you know, if you look at the Biden family, certainly it's a Hunter is, uh, yeah, I'm sure, said some much more vile language than the F-bomb. So I don't think it's like completely out of character for um, our president to to use that term. But yeah, in this particular context, I don't know. It's hard to say whether that was uh, calculated or not. Um, and, that, you know, the fact it got shared, because all kinds of things get picked up on hot mics, right? I mean, it's the president, like most of what he's saying is being recorded, or at least, you know, when he's in public. But this one clearly was put out there, right, to get to the media and to the public and everything. So I don't know, it's kind of a non story in a lot of ways. But um, I don't think it hurts Biden's image at all to be uh, you know, going and showing himself up. There's also a viral image that uh, I don't know if you've seen Ben or any of your listeners have, but it's of uh, when he's down in Florida near DeSantis and DeSantis is like walking away looking a little dejected and Biden is talking to a couple voters, like uh, old white people, and they look like enamored with Biden and uh, DeSantis looks just like sullen and it's like sulking away. So definitely helps to uh, uh, brandish Biden's image a little bit more as the um, caring president who can kind of connect with the American people versus somebody like DeSantis, who, you know, even his even DeSantis's supporters probably would have to admit he's pretty a weird. He's a pretty weird guy and, not you know, a super compassionate or relatable figure. 
when it comes to his role as governor there. So, yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily the fact that he, you know, did this all on purpose, but uh, yeah, that doesn't hurt either. You're not saying that DeSantis is super compassionate. You're saying that, uh, I don't wanna make sure I understood you. You're not saying that Ron DeSantis is super compassionate, are you saying? No, the opposite, yeah, because in, in the photo, yeah, Biden is seen kind of like, uh, uh talking to and smiling with uh this uh, older couple yeah. i think they're a couple down in florida and DeSantis just looks like completely out of place and uh, unhappy and i think that reflects the reality that he is a weird guy and not compassionate and not relatable and you know you know he might be serving conservative aims and certainly i think that has helped him and you know his anti-covid measure policies i think certainly helped with his voting based down in florida but in no way is Ron DeSantis like a likable guy. Um, and so, yeah, so I think it's it's all part of that same dynamic. Absolutely. And I told you before uh, you came on the air uh, that uh, by chance, I just saw the movie Punch Nine, which is a documentary uh, about Harold Washington. And I interviewed Joe Winston. You can hear that interview. It dropped uh, on Thursday. Uh, I, the director of the movie and oh my God, there were so many parallels between what Harold Washington went through when he ran uh, for mayor against Bernie Epton in that first uh, mayoral election in 1983. Um, the general election, the first general election, I should say, came after the Democratic primary. Uh, and just the uh, unvarnished hatred that uh, was generated among white voters uh, in the city of Chicago uh, toward Harold Washington. And, they, and the clips of, of people expressing that hatred and the, the, the really painful to watch still uh, in this day, uh, clips of Harold being jeered uh, when he went to a church on the Northwest side with Walter Mondale, uh, former Vice President Walter Mondale. Um, and I think about where we are politically, the people like Ron DeSantis. And Ron DeS DeSantis is just picking up where that crowd left off, and it's not just Ron DeSantis, but all of MAGA, to a certain degree, is just picking up and unapologetically behaving like people uh, outside that church jeering Harold Washington. And um, what is disturbing uh, on many levels of Miles, there's many things disturbing about it. what in particular is disturbing is how it's just accepted behavior for Republicans. So when when people when those images were shown in 1983, the conventional reaction was that people were supposed to be shocked and upset. You get what I'm saying? You're not supposed to embrace it. Uh, Mayor Richard Daley got elected in part because he didn't embrace it. He had enough sense to distance himself just a bit uh, from from that kind of vitriol, uh, and that was considered a healing mayor. That a guy like Ron DeSantis, he had not he doesn't care. Donald Trump led the way. He doesn't care. You say what you want to say. You get people fired up. You make all sorts of vile accusations, stir up all kinds of uh, prejudices and fears. This is, quote unquote, the winning ticket for Republicans in this day and age. And I, I think uh, Ron DeSantis is like maybe the, the worst of the bunch because he just so eagerly embraces it miles do you follow me and and then he's such a fraud like when his state is battered he's like well we're working together to cut you know through the red tape when he voted as a congressman against aid to new jersey like those people were suffering too their suffering doesn't matter 
You follow what I'm saying? It's like, in many ways, it's like we've gone, it's worse now, politically speaking, even in 19, than it was in 1983 uh, when Harold went into that church. Your thoughts? Well, the one uh, major change since that era is just the Republican Party's uh, hard right turn against uh, basic democratic principles. And I think that that's really what is represented by somebody like DeSantis is, you know, it's almost uh, horrifying in its banality, the way that the Republicans have just chosen to radicalize against democracy as just a straightforward, like political uh, ploy to increase their electoral viability because how Trump has polarized the electorate around the issue of, you know, the 2020 election being uh, allegedly stolen, uh, which is obviously a lie, but it has become a rite of passage to become a you know mainstream electable republican at this point um and not just that the you know in the wake of having to you know do this sacrament of you know proving that you believe that in fact joe biden didn't really win the presidency um as a republican you now are expected to push anti-voter laws across the board and work to undermine uh, democratic rights at uh, at every um, situation possible, and specifically, we're seeing that with all of these Republican, you know, secretaries of states and governors. DeSantis is a prime example of somebody who, just as you know, a way to benefit himself politically. I don't think it's even out of ideology or principle. Um, has decided to put um, voting rights in the crosshairs and work to disenfranchise voters. I mean, you know about this, you know, the state had passed a popular referendum and amendment to provide the right to vote to um, hundreds of thousands of people that had been disenfranchised and DeSantis just decided to, and, and the Republicans decided to overturn it, which is, you know, a straightforward attack on democratic rights. And yet that is just the mainstream Republican party. Um, in that way, I mean, I think that a lot of the racism that was certainly very prevalent and explicit during Harold Washington's time um, has now just gone undercover, but it hasn't changed fundamentally from, you know, the motivations behind it haven't changed and certainly the impacts of it haven't changed. And we see that in the massive discrepancies when it comes to uh, issues of equity. You know, if you look at the racial wealth gap, if you look at, you know, um, poverty statistics, if you look at, you know, segregation and housing, so many of these issues that are endemic um, that have to do with uh, structural racism have persevered and in many ways gotten worse since, um, since that era um, 30 some years ago. So 40 years ago, really. So, I mean, that's just goes to show that, it, you know, the times have changed, but, you know, while it might seem on the face of it, that, uh, things have moderated a little bit from, you know, the outright virulent racism that you saw against, uh, somebody like Harold Washington in the, in the early eighties, these days, it's just kind of taken a new form and it's almost more sinister, as I said, because if, it goes against the very principle of democracy, which is what, you know, in the 60s and through our time today, people have um, fought and spent their lives trying to um, defend, if not, you know, actually, you know, enfranchise people. And I think that, that this new frontier of that fight is 
it should be, you know, trying to give the right to vote to people that it has been taken away from, i.e., you know, convicts and people that, you know, are, are traditionally not able to participate in our governmental system, yet still have representatives um, making the laws that rule their lives. But instead, it's now moved to just defending democracy on, on a basic level so that we, you know, can still have a say in who chooses our um, elected officials. So, yeah, I think that there there's a lot of ways in which DeSantis is a good represent uh, representative of that. And you're right to make that through line from um, from Chicago's history back in the 80s. Yeah. Oh my goodness. If you and I urge everybody to see the movie, uh, Miles, you too. Uh, it's playing in Chicago for at least the next week. Just look it up on the internet at Punch Nine. Uh, but uh, if, if you listen to the, some of the rhetoric uh, that was used against Harold. Uh, in 1983 campaign with Epton and close your eyes. It's the same rhetoric that's being used right now by uh, allies of Darren Bailey to try to defeat J.B. Pritzker. Same literal rhetoric. Be afraid. Crime will be rampant. Be scared. Uh, and uh, I'm like, wow, man, it's just like nothing has changed. Here's an important distinction to your point. This wasn't in the movie, but I remember this. Uh, on election night when Harold defeated Bernie Epton, Bernie Epton refused to be a gracious uh, loser. Uh, and he said, it's too late to, uh, to make any concessions. I'm not going to, uh, to congratulate Harold Washington. And he, he left uh, the hotel where his, his supporters were. Uh, and, but of course, Harold won and Harold became mayor. The difference then from now, of course, is uh, Republicans would just say, I, we really won. The election was stolen. Uh, we're going to uh, do what we can to unturn it because, overturn it because we know it was stolen and we're going to pass laws to make sure, as you said, it, you know, future elections aren't stolen, even though this election hadn't been stolen. So they use uh, a, a lie to justify changes in the law uh, governing elections. Uh, so to your point, I think it's a lot more frightening today uh, then in 1983, in 1983, Bernie Epton was content being a, um, a bad loser. Nowadays, <laughs> Lord knows, you know what I mean? They would be moving, they were doing recounts, contesting, you know, calling people, voters in the court to see if they really were, uh, uh registered to vote properly, et cetera, and so forth. So, uh, it's a different, it's definitely a different time. I could ask you something, we're going to make a transition here about the different mindset between Democrats and Republicans. And this was, uh, of course, we talked about this in the show, Herschel Walker, this allegation has come out uh, that he had one of his uh, former lovers, he paid for her to have an abortion. Uh, Herschel Walker denies it, but there's evidence of him, him uh, the, of the Cardi Center, his son uh, has been denouncing that, that, Christian Walker has been denouncing Herschel Walker. Anyway, in the midst of it all, uh, Dana Loesch, who is a Republican uh, strategist of sorts and a mouthpiece for the Republicans for MAGA, uh, said, and I'm quoting, quote, I don't care if Herschel Walker paid to abort, to abort endangered baby eagles. I want control of the Senate. Now, that is a really uh, uh, deceitful quote on many lines, uh, Miles. It wasn't a uh, endangered baby eagle that Herschel Walker allegedly paid to abort. It was a fetus a human fetus. And according to MAGA, that's tantamount to murder. And so she trivializes what is supposedly this sacred life, the death of a sacred life, 
she trivializes it by saying, I don't care if it was an eagle. Like aborting an eagle is somehow worse than aborting a baby to MAGA. Just the levels of deceit and hypocrisy are overwhelming. And our my good friend Sam Holloway always reminds me, Ben, fascists don't care if you catch them in their hypocrisy. They just want to win. And I think it it is so clear in that statement. All we want to do is uh control all I want control of the Senate. The mindset of MAGA compared to Democrats, Miles, is we want to win. We'll do whatever it takes to win. We want to win. It seems like the two sides are playing by different rules. Your thoughts? Uh, I think you're right. There is clearly a uh, discrepancy in terms of the approach to politics. Um, and, you know, that was a pretty unhinged rant. I, I, I watched that one by uh, that, that far right pundit. But I do think it speaks to uh, disposition, which is about, you know, fighting to gain power and use that power to affect policy change at all costs. Um, and in a lot of ways, in like a real politique sense, that offers a lot of lessons for those who, you know, are out of power and want to gain it uh, and how to leverage it once you have it. The problem is that the people that are the most effective at it are the ones with this neoconservative hyper-reactionary agenda that want to strip rights away from people, create more um, uh, inequality and you know, use their position of power to enrich the uh, most powerful uh, and and financially powerful elites in this country. And they're doing it while making the opposite argument, right? And we've talked about this before, this, you know, posing as like a populist or, or a work, so-called workers party and railing against the globalist elite, which is what you see the um, right wing movement uh, and its leadership uh, uh, attest to incessantly these days is that they are somehow the voice of workers when we can see in every one of their actions from, you know, Trump's tax cuts that simply went to uh, benefit the wealthiest Americans to all of the protections of corporate power and the invisceration of workers' rights that is fundamental to the GOP agenda. It's all hypocrisy, as you just said, but it also, I think, is part of a larger dynamic that's at play here, which is that um, it's a lot harder of a case to make an affirmative, you know, uh, uh, agenda ab about governance itself in the in the public space than it is to try to tear down people's trust in government. And when people's trust gets torn down, it benefits Republicans because people check out and they're able to, you know, build off of that fear. The only way Republican, the only way Republicans, you know, succeed, it seems, it's not through a popular agenda because the things they want to do are generally massively unpopular, but it's through getting enough people dejected and resentful of political leadership and then either turning towards, you know, a, like a strong man like Trump who says, like, I alone can fix it or just backing out of the political system and throw the bums out kind of uh, uh, disposition. And that's a lot harder for Democrats because they are, you know, trying to say, hey, elect us to power so that we can enact uh, an agenda that you actually want. But, you know, when people think the elections are all being stolen and that the people in power are 
um, you know, either um, on the far end of things, they're like, you know, part of some pedophile cabal or just that they're all corrupt and working for, um, you know, or trying to like teach your kids to hate their parents because of CRT or something like that. That all serves the purposes of just um, having people tune out. And I think when people think about politics, we always talk about independence and the middle and how we need to, you know, win over the Reagan Democrats would bring them back into the fold of, um, you know, the Democratic Party. But they discount the fact that the voting pool keeps shrinking because, you know, less almost, you know, half of the country doesn't even engage in electoral politics. Uh, and those are the people that I think should be appealed to to, to, to to win them over. But it's a much harder sell to bring people to get get people to care and invest themselves in a process they feel either that they don't have any control over or that just promises things and never fulfills them and um, sadly i think both parties are um, guilty of that both you know not actually following through on promises or once they get into power using that power to benefit the people that are actually causing the, the, the human misery that uh, is so rampant in this country. Yeah, well put. And by the way, when you use that phrase, uh, Reagan Democrat, I have a smile. I remember uh, when that was a thing uh, back in the 80, after the 1980 election, uh, when uh, pundits were going through the elections and saying uh, Reagan successfully converted all these voters, they're Reagan Democrats. And I, I the thought occurred to me then, and it's as true today as it was then, they were, they're not real Democrats. Those are Republicans. Uh, they were Nixon Democrats before they were Reagan Democrats. They were Bush Democrats after they were Reagan Democrats. And now they're Trump Democrats. Guys, just take Democrat out of the sentence. They're not Democrats. They're Republicans. They may, some of them may have union jobs. So yes, it's a contradiction. You have a union job and you support presidents who want to destroy unions. Yes, it's a fundamental contradiction. But Miles, I don't view people who consistently vote Republican as Democrats. And I feel like Democrats struggle with this. I'm not saying write them off and don't try to get to flip their votes, but I'm just thinking like this notion that it's like a one-time happenstance that voters went Republican just because of the person running. Got news for you. It's election after election with the possible exception of 2008 with Barack Obama, which is a whole other uh, thing. Your thoughts? Well, I, I was going to say that exact point, both in 2008 and in 2012. I think Obama was kind of effective at bringing over some more of the, you know, Rust Belt, uh, white working class uh, uh, voting base that has eluded Democrats since then. Certainly in 2016, uh, it was a massive failure to um, reach out to uh, the, those voters. Um, and you saw that at the results in places like Wisconsin. Um, and even in 2020, you saw a lot of this educational polarization at play where there's a lot of um, a lot of the fundamentals of you know the uh, political playbook have changed where the people with you know lower levels of education are uh, just consistently voting for the Republican ticket and moving away for the same people that you know had voted for Obama have now turned away from the Democrats. The 
there's a lot of factors at play there, but I do think that you know Obama was a singularly you know a, effective politician. Um, but during the course of, and you know, I talk about this a lot during the course of Obama's presidency, the Democratic Party was decimated at, across the country. It wasn't, you know, while he was able to succeed and appeal to a lot of these voters, the party itself remained this kind of centrist vessel of corporate interests and didn't actually change itself to be a defender of, you know, working class people. And had it actually followed through on a lot of those promises. I think you would probably see a different um, political balance of power right now than than where we're at. And I mean, there were some things, you know, obviously the, the, the auto deal, I think, was was a beneficial for Obama and, you know, reaching out to a lot of voters from, you know, Michigan, the upper Midwest and, you know, this deindustrializing part of the country um, and a lot of other, you know, deals that Obama was involved in. But I don't think that um, he left a really great uh, legacy in terms of, you know, where Democrats have have to go in terms of, you know, fulfilling a legacy of, you know, standing up against corporate power and trying to advance working class values. And that's why I think there's, you know, so much of a need right now for an affirmative agenda from the Democratic Party if they want to um, set themselves apart. Uh, ahead of these midterms and and make uh, yeah a, a case for what why they would be better than the alternative. Yeah, uh, and again going back to Harold, uh, one of the things that comes clear uh, in the movie when you listen to Harold Washington, he was very much uh, a leftist. He was a Bernie. <laughs> he was Bernie Sanders before Bernie Sanders, and some of the things he said would fit in well with Bernie's movement, uh, and he was unafraid to say it. And so I thought of you and all the millennial Bernie supporters that come on my show and go stand for something. If you stand for something, people will have a reason, a compelling reason to vote for you, uh, as opposed to you're not as horrible as Herschel Walker, let's say, you know. Uh, and uh, so anyway, that uh, thought uh, popped into my mind. Shout out to you and Micah for putting that in my head many, many times. All right, let's talk about the fight for the Senate. Uh, Dana Loesch said, uh, I want control of the Senate. She was very clear. She doesn't care uh, if the candidates' personal life completely contradict what they supposedly believe in. Doesn't matter, all that matters is that uh, a Republican gets elected and that Republican follows whatever commands and orders that are issued uh, by the party leadership. Uh, even if it, one day it contradicts what they're saying, uh, the next day. Uh, right now it's 50-50 in the Senate uh, with uh, Kamala Harris uh, breaking, uh, having the tie-breaking vote. Um, what's your sense? We're about a month out now of who will prevail. Uh, do you think the Dems will uh, hold on or do you think the MAGA will take control of the Senate? Well, the smart money has been on Democrats retaining control, if not expanding their majority, um, at least in recent weeks and largely that has come in the wake of this uh, Dobbs decision, this really um, disastrous uh, ruling by the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade and restricting um, abortion rights across the country, which understandably has benefited Democrats because the Republicans, this is their you know multi-decade long dream that has finally been fulfilled of stripping away reproductive freedom from millions of uh, uh, women across the country. And the result has been, you know, the voters are, don't like that. It's not popular, you know, and, and 
that's manifested through uh, some of this polling. What we haven't seen is an election at a statewide level yet. You know, we've seen some of these special elections, which have uh, benefited Democrats. And certainly in Kansas, we saw a referendum um, that supported abortion rights uh, be successful, which was um, uh, beneficial to the argument that Democrats will have a good chance in uh, in November. But we're seeing those polls tighten now. Um, in race after race, the, the money is coming through, and we usually see this, you know, after Labor Day, that that's when real money gets spent. And um, we've also seen historically massive uh, failures of the polls to ad uh, accurately predict who will um, win in these races. And so I think that there's definitely plenty of reason to be hesitant and not super bullish on um, on Democrats' chances. Like if you look back there, you know, 2020, people thought that Susan Collins was going to be taken out. You know, everybody thought Claire McCaskill was safe in 2018. Um, even Ron Johnson, you know, people thought he was uh, uh, dead in the water and McConnell even kind of uh, gestured towards that um, last time he was up for uh, election. And in all of those cases, the Republicans were able to out overcome um, what seemed to be, uh, if not insurmountable odds, at least, you know, worse chances for them. And so I think the Democrats should be sober about the fact that this is a really um important moment and we can't really predict what will happen but what uh, certainly the, the party can do is as i said make offer an affirmative case and i think what they have been doing is relying on really awful candidates uh in, in that have won these republican primaries in a number of states you know you look at blake masters um in arizona herschel walker who you mentioned down in georgia dr oz and Pennsylvania, um, these are just not the kind of people that are effective at reaching a wide swath of voters. And they're, you know, Herschel Walker is just everywhere you look, he's, you know, a complete hypocrite and getting caught in lies and now having his family denounce him. Um, Dr. Oz is somebody who spent their career peddling, you know, made up medicine. Um, and profiting off of it as basically a fake doctor. And now has got a scandal on his hands because he was apparently involved in these experiments on puppies that you know, resulted in like hundreds of puppies being killed. This is kind of, you know, evil stuff, right? This is like the, the uh, kind of, you couldn't create a better candidate to go up against if you were a Democrat, especially in an environment where abortion is basically on the ballot. That said, they, Democrats have power now. In some senses, it's a very tenuous balance. As you said, it's a 50-50 um, in the Senate with a tie-breaking vote for them. But they still haven't been able to fulfill a lot of the campaign promises, including Biden's basic agenda, which was um, what the Build Back Better Act was uh, promised, which is things like uh, you know investments in childcare and affordable housing. Um, one particular issue that I think is critically important is the child tax credit, which benefited millions of families and um, was, you know, one of the most successful anti-poverty programs in a generation. And that just went away after a year, right? And Democrats have not been able to renew it. Um, that's not to say that 
all Democrats are, you know, resistant to actually putting forward that kind of an agenda and even being willing to vote for it. But with the current balance of power, they haven't been able to get the votes to do it. So they need to make the case that they need more votes so that they can do it, you know, and, and I think that that's what you're going to have to see happen in this final stretch versus just relying on more of these kind of October surprise um, scandals to come out about over the um, over the Republican candidates, or even, uh, you know, when it comes to the question of abortion, I think there needs to be a real commitment to securing uh, uh, abortion rights and doing more to protect them, especially in the states they already exist, um, to make sure they don't get rolled back, but also expanding to provide more access for um, people who want reproductive healthcare access across the country. And I don't think we're seeing enough of that. I mean, I think understandably, just the fact that Roe v. Wade got repealed is enough to motivate people to come out and support Democrats. But I don't know if it's going to be enough to see them um, continue to keep the Senate, let alone the House. So yeah, I think there needs to be some more uh, effort done in um, in in these last few weeks if Democrats are going to have a chance. Because let's just like look at what's at stake, right? Like if the Republicans take the House, it's going to be impeachment hearings nonstop. You know, they're going to impeach Biden over like everything they possibly can and be dragging people into committee hearings. Kevin McCarthy has already pledged to do that. Um, and if it's not him, it's going to be somebody even further to the right, you know, that the Republicans will um, put in that House Speaker position. And in the Senate, if the Republicans get the Senate, that's the end of any anybody getting confirmed, you know, under Biden, any of his judicial nominees, Supreme Court justices, anybody, because, you know, the Senate, they'll just completely logjam all of that. Mitch McConnell, I'm sure, will have no problem um, being a complete opposition party for the final two years of um, Biden's first term. So there's, you know, there's really a lot at stake. Let, and that's even outside of like foreclosing any actual legislative achievements the Democrats might hope to uh, to get uh, in the coming years. So it's, you know, it's 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 a really important um, election that's coming up. And I think that it should be taken as seriously by people in the party leadership. Yeah. And you're that uh, what you just said just uh, triggered another thought in my mind. Again, another parallel to punch not. I can't urge you to see it enough. But the opposition that Harold Washington faced in his first couple of years when he did not have a majority of votes in the city council called council wars, uh, it was it was uh, it was McConnell before McConnell block every appointment, block every initiative, do everything you can to sabotage the administration. So the folks uh, turn against it and blame the administration uh, for the inability of the city to do the basic things it's supposed to do. Uh, and I see the same tactics now in the Congress and the Senate. Uh, and in Chicago, it was treated like an aberration. It's like, oh my God, how, what is going on in Chicago? How can they dare do that? We're, we're not like that in Washington. We're not like that in Springfield. I remember congressmen and uh, state reps saying that kind of thing at the time. And now, oh yeah, well, you just studied the Eddie Rodoli again, Berkeley book, and now you're playing it uh, on a national scale. All right, let's take a look at Wisconsin. Uh, I know this is a state you follow closely, uh, Medella Barnes versus Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson, man, Dems can't be Ron Johnson. Uh, talk about the uh, the challenges and the potential for uh, Medella uh, Barnes victory. Go ahead. That's a race where it really did look um, right after Barnes secured the Democratic nomination. Um, 
pretty good for the Democrats. You know, I think he was leading by eight, six to eight points in a lot of the polls against Johnson initially. Um, and we've just seen that narrow over um, over the uh, over the following months. And at this point, it does look more likely that at, at least it's notoriously a difficult state to poll and the polls have been pretty off in Wisconsin, as I said, and that um, last time Ron Johnson was up for election, he was, you know, not uh, picked to be the winner um, initially. And then lo and behold, on election day, he succeeded. And so I think you can't discount his popularity in the state and effectiveness, even against somebody like Russ Feingold, who was pretty popular in the state, uh, but still couldn't win back his seat. Um, and Barnes, I think, you know, has been a, a you know, strong progressive candidate, but he does have um, a lot of history being, you know, involved in, uh, you know, on cultural issues being, you know, on the left and the right has used that to really go after him on all kinds of issues. Of course, things like defund the police um, and, you know, law and order uh, issues, but all kinds of, you know, cultural signaling stuff. That's where they've really um, invested a lot of their attacks on Barnes, and that does seem to be having an impact on the race in terms of turning people away from somebody who otherwise I think is, you know, and not just otherwise, but actually is a good candidate. And I think Barnes would be an effective senator, but that has become a liability in a race where, you know, the, the, the you know, everybody's pretty ginned up around a lot of these hot button cultural issues. And, you know, it's kind of the Glenn Youngkin playbook from Virginia we saw where it's like, just make up a fake scandal and say, you know, these Democrats want to teach your kids, um, you know, to hate all white people because of critical race theory, or they, you know, want to question their gender because they believe, you know, that trans people exist, really just taking the most heinous way of, you know, interpolating a lot of these complex cultural um, debates and issues that are in the public um, debate and consciousness right now, and then using them as a cudgel to um, point the, to, to try to villainize anybody with a D next to their name. And certainly, I think Barnes has been open to that, whereas Ron Johnson, like, he is a tool of the corporate class through and through. Like, that is his constituency whole hog. He's not, he, like, is impossible for him to shake that. And yet he still positions himself as like a working class kind of guy. I mean, Scott Walker did kind of a similar thing in the state uh, previously. So I'm, I'm, I'm not shocked he's using that playbook. Um, but yeah, I think it's gonna be, it's gonna be a tough one for Democrats. And again, I think it's a case where there needs to be more than just hoping that Johnson's gonna stumble or something. I think that there needs to be more done, especially when it comes to door knocking and trying to get, you know, the unions um, involved. Uh, but yeah, I think it's hard to, it's hard to handicap it, but I guess we'll, we'll, we'll have to see on that one. Yeah, that is, that's, uh, I was just looking at the numbers uh, and in each instance, he's run uh, what this will be his third uh, run, Ron Johnson. He uh, has eked out, well, not really eked, he got over 50% of the vote uh, each time, but uh, not a huge majority in Wisconsin Senate races. He beat Feingold in the first election with about 52% of the vote to Feingold's 47. Uh, and then he beat him in the rematch with 50% to Feingold's, again, 47. So, um, yeah, it's... Uh, Unless 
the Dems and, and the Barnes campaign can increase, this is always the challenge, uh, increase the number of people who vote, and presumably the people who aren't voting would be Barnes voters, uh, if they if they can't increase the number of people who vote, then they have to hope that there's a sliver of Republicans uh, who cross over because they just are so offended by Ron Johnson. And that's always, you know what I'm saying? Uh, the, the Like when I began the show talking about what is considered offensive has just, the standards have really shifted in our country uh, over the last year. So offensive behavior by Ron Johnson in terms of whether Joe Biden won the election, whether it was stolen or how he acted uh, on January 6th, it's kind of lost. Uh, so yeah, it's a tricky, it's a very tricky race. Uh, the one in, in uh, Pennsylvania, again, Ron Johnson is an incumbent Republican, so it's a big pickup for the Dems if they can take that. Uh, similarly in Pennsylvania, it's a Republican seat. Uh, it's open because um, the, uh, the incumbent is stepping down. And interesting tactic here, Fetterman's campaign, the Democrat, is using humor in a way that um, haven't seen used a lot in statewide campaigns. He's just openly mocking uh, Dr. Oz. And Dr. Oz is a very mockable character in many ways. I don't know if you saw the latest commercials where they take the Dr. Nick from The Simpsons, who's always one of my favorite characters in The Simpsons, by the way, what a character. Anyway, they use Dr. Nick to make it seem like Dr. Oz and Dr. Nick are cut from the same cloth. They're laughing at him. Uh, and your thoughts about that tactic? Well, he certainly opened himself up to those type of attacks with the Wegman stuff, uh, talking about making crudités and everything and, you know, <laughs> juggling a bunch of vegetables in his hands. I think that's like Dr. Oz is the perfect, uh, you know, foil for, you know, the, yeah, seeming like a, a cartoon-like uh, foolish uh, character and not a real politician. Also, I mean, this tactic was deployed initially when uh, Fetterman, the Democratic uh, nominee, was still hospitalized after his his stroke. I mean, he won the primary when he was still, yeah, in um, in a hospital bed. And so he was not in a position to start going out and campaigning once he won the nod. But what he was able to do was just start hammering Oz over, you know, not being a real Pennsylvanian, you know, and making fun of him for living in Jersey and having multiple houses and really trying to define the terms of the campaign. And I do think that's been incredibly effective. And you see that through uh, the polling. It seems like that is a much stronger, I think it'll be a very close race, but I think that Fetterman is a much stronger chance than a lot of Democrats in these other uh, races do just because he built up that early lead and was able to kind of define the race early on and make it about, you know, a referendum on Oz versus about other issues. Um, and that's, uh, that's where, you know, I think it is like Democrats learning from Republicans, because that's what Republicans have historically been so successful at, you know, and especially um, in recent years around issues of, yeah, as I said, like defunding the police and abolition and law and order um, questions, that's Republicans try to make, and even like things like socialism, right? I mean, that's Republicanism 101 is just say your opponent is a radical anti-American socialist, you know, whatever, uh, Soviet, you know, puppet or something that's gonna uh, try to take away your way of life or something. 
there, this was not like such a nefarious attack by Fetterman, but it was more, as you said, humorous and effective because, you know, Oz isn't from Pennsylvania and he does have tons of houses and he is kind of a fool, you know, when it comes to his public persona and how he presents himself. And he spent his career peddling, you know, made up medicines and cure-alls and stuff uh, on TV. I think Trump thought that that was going to be, you know, up to his benefit as a candidate. And that's why Trump kind of went all in for Oz. Uh, but Trump was kind of singularly able to leverage his celebrity um, persona and use that as kind of a tough guy and, and really get people to buy in because Trump kind of leans into the humor as well, right? He can kind of be be a performer and um, still own the stage and still kind of have the last laugh. Whereas somebody like Oz, I don't think is used to this kind of scrutiny and has just looked like he's flailing in response. And that's really been to, um, to Fetterman's benefit. On the issues as well, I mean, I do think abortion is, is gonna play an important role in that race. And yeah, Oz has pretty radical positions on it as do people like, Blake Masters, and with somebody like Blake Masters, you saw him actually try to remove all of his mentions of his actual anti-abortion positions from his campaign pages after he saw the you know response after Dobbs and just like run away from it. Herschel Walker, I, I don't know if it's to his credit, but he didn't do that. Instead, he just leaned in and said, actually, like abortion is murder in all cases and kind of went all in on that. Um, but of course, now we're seeing his hypocrisy on display with the fact he was, you know, paying for uh, an abortion as well. So, yeah, I think that, that all of these races are going to um, come down to uh, very tight margins. And it's just really on Democrats to make every effort right now to do get out the vote and make sure that it's not just about voting against Republicans, but it's actually voting for um people that are going to be good representatives of those uh, constituencies and actually fight for working class. I'll just, you know, say as a last thing, when it comes to Warnock, especially Warnock and Ossoff won largely because they said, we're going to get you stimulus checks, right? They, they made the campaign about we're fighting to get you money in your pocket. And um, they overcame every odd and, won both of those races in Georgia, which is what allowed the Democrats to um, have this um, position of power in the Senate. And I think that's a good playbook that Democrats should learn from is, you know, when you run on something and then you fulfill it. I mean, that's the thing is they did actually get those checks sent out. That's how you, I don't think Warnock would be in anywhere near as good of a spot, a spot if he hadn't been, I mean, he wouldn't have been elected in the first place, but he wouldn't have gained voters trust if he hadn't delivered on that campaign pledge, they could do the same thing now, you know, they could say, you know, vote for us, and we're going to send you another round of stimulus checks, right? They could say vote for us, and we're going to, um, you know, pass the PRO Act, expand union rights, they could say vote for us, and we're going to, you know, ban uh, trading among members of Congress. Uh, these are all things that um, uh, Democrats have, have talked about that are massively popular, that if they did gain power, the Democrats then could go ahead and do, and they would be good policies, right? And actually like benefit the country. Not to mention the one it, it, uh, policy I talked about earlier, the child tax credit, right? Like if we were able to make the child tax credit permanent, that would change the landscape of child poverty in this country um, 
completely and and you know radically improve millions of people's lives across the country and there's no doubt that would benefit democrats uh, politically down the road for years and years to come so these are just some of the things i think that should be taken into account it's easy to focus on a lot of the missteps of the republicans and hope that that's going to like get dems across the finish line but without a real affirmative case i don't see how that's going to you know at least long term uh, change the balance of power I agree with you. And it's always tricky. Uh, I, and I'm saying this from experience, it's always tricky uh, to depend on uh, what the clumsy uh, phraseology of a candidate, you know, like Herschel Walker, he starts talking, nobody knows what he's saying. What, what is the point? He's mixing metaphors and, uh, and liberals laugh and stuff. And I'm like, you know, a lot of people, have a hard time getting a sentence out. I have a hard time getting a sentence out a lot. If you look at a, a transcript of something I've said, Miles, I'm like, what? But if you, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, Ben. So uh, I watch people here in the city of Chicago elect uh, Mayor Richard M. Daley time in and time again. They still be voting for him. Uh, and he had trouble getting a sentence out. So, you know, just because you're smart, you know what I mean? You get, it kind of leads into arrogance sometimes with people. And um, that's not a, a winning, uh, this is not a winning uh, way to go about life. All right, we're gonna close as we always do by uh, uh, allowing you the opportunity to talk about some of the great articles uh, coming out in, in these times uh, that folks should check out. So take it away, Miles. Definitely. Um, yeah, there is an article making kind of a case I uh, talked about, about why Democrats should really go all in on the um, child tax credit um, by Jim Pugh, who works at a Universal Income Project, which is a great um, organization. Um, a piece uh, I would really recommend um, is uh, on the uprising in Iran and um, specifically the role of labor unions and uh, women uh, union members that have taken to the streets, you know, across Iran to demand not just uh, gender justice, you know, in the wake of this really horrific uh, killing of a young woman over um, apparently improper wearing of a hijab by the morality police there. But, you know, the demands of that movement have really expanded to um, be more encompassing and, and um, protest against both the dictatorship and, of course, yeah, the policing of women's bodies more largely, as well as to discrimination against um, Kurdish people and other ethnic minorities. And then it's really uh, become a protest against uh, economic inequality and injustice that is happening in large part as a result of sanctions, including those placed by the U.S. that have not really hurt the ruling elite in Iran, but rather um, the, the Iranian people. And yeah, so I think that it's a, it's a really interesting article because it, it, it broadens the scope of, you know, a lot of people I'm sure are familiar with what's going on in Iran right now, but um, it's not just a feminist revolt. It's really kind of moved into a broader um, anti-government uprising. So definitely recommend people check that out and um, definitely tune into uh, Chicago Bulls uh, preseason, you'll get to see uh, the young man, Dalen Terry, the rookie from Arizona, who I got to see live and in person the other night uh, at the uh, the debut. Just got to give a shout out because uh, Bulls basketball is back. 
Um, people might have a dour mood because Lonzo Ball is still sidelined, but there's plenty of uh, players and storylines to be invested in, including, uh, you know, the fact that it is clearly Dalen Terry time now. He went off for 11 points um, in a very brief stint on there and had a breakaway steal and dunk. So you'll get to see a little bit of action if you uh, tune into to Bulls basketball. So got to give a plug for that. Oh man, you know that's that's raw meat. That's throwing, but that's it, like so throwing fried chicken and M and M's at me. Uh, and we're <laughs> going to show. I gotta, I gotta hold back and, uh, you know, uh, and try not to go too far into that conversation. But yeah, like you, I was, I was watching that game. And, uh, the Bulls are getting blown out. All of a sudden, Dale and Terry comes in and they make a run. And they actually took the lead. Man, the baby freak made a couple of questionable moves. Uh, <laughs> uh decisions in that game uh that kind of flip things but uh anyway. Ana de Kumpo, yeah yeah so, well so did andre drummond who got kicked out and kind of changed the momentum got it although i gotta say you shouldn't get a technical and get kicked out of the game for you know cheering on the sideline that's kind of ridiculous the nba has got to do something about that they're, they're trying to figure stuff it's preseason for everybody the players the refs the nba they're all figuring it out uh and i'm really hoping that patrick williams finds his way he's he got kind of beat up a little bit by zion williams son uh and we need patrick Williams. i don't even know why he would be covering zion i mean zion's massive yeah i had to put a bigger player on it but whatever i'm not the coach i'm just a pod show uh, podcast host anyway uh yes my beloved bulls and miles beloved bulls i'll be going to the game tuesday uh miles so uh get to check out a preseason game myself all right miles conf lesson thank you very much in these times editor writer and frequent guest in our show thanks for coming on all right miles thank you ben and i also want to thank producer chris another outstanding job as dr d continues to enjoy the uh early days of parenthood dr d is a daddy d right now yes uh, <laughs> i love saying that uh so great job chris and as i always say uh, give yourself a raise and take it out of petty cash have a great weekend everybody